Welcome to Bookaholics, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's podcast series dedicated to books. If there's one vice that all of us picked faculty have in common, it's our addiction to the written word. So in this podcast series, we introduce you to some of our favourite authors and books. Recent books, relevant books, our own books sometimes, but also classic books that we just can't seem to stop talking about. My name is Ian McKenzie. In this episode, it is my pleasure to welcome the Pali Mathur, currently a digital scholarship postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Edinburgh. In this episode, we'll be discussing Depali's recently published book entitled Available to be Poisoned, Toxicity as a Form of Life. This is published this year, 2022, by Lexington Books and uh, readily available from all uh, good sources. Hello, Depali. Welcome to the podcast. Let's begin with this question. Just could you give us an account of why you wrote this book and give us a sense of the main themes of this book. Hi Ian, first of all, and thanks for having me on this episode. Um, hopefully uh, you'll find you'll find this book interesting, you'll find something there for you. Um, it's an interesting question. Um, let me just first begin by what what really got me interested in in this kind of research and in writing this book. And it was more a sense of realizing that a kind of abnormal condition and not a kind of, but an abnormal condition of, you know, living with and being constantly exposed to toxic pollution has today almost become a normal condition of life um, and has become an accepted part of life rather than something that gets us riled, um, you know, drives us to action. Um, we've kind of almost, you know, taken it as a part of our everyday life, something that we have to live with and something that's inevitable um, as we, you know, as we continue to progress and modernize. So I suppose it was that, it was trying to understand that that new um, new kind of perspective, new way of looking at our everyday condition um, that first got me interested in this research. And uh, in this book, I have specifically looked at India as a case study. That's where I'm from. Um, and you know, they always say, write about what you know. <laughs> so, so that's what I tried to do, write about what I know. Um, so I have the way that I've structured the book is by picking three case studies from India that I read as ongoing incidents and ongoing events of toxic pollution. And what's puzzling about these three case studies is, you know, they're not new. Um, the last one, of course, is the last case study is was a very last minute um, decision of mine to include in the book. It's on the COVID-19 pandemic. So hopefully most of you find that quite interesting to read. Um, but these case studies were interesting to me because. As I mentioned before, um, 
you know, this exposure to toxic pollution has been ongoing for decades. So, for instance, the first um, case study that I picked um, is it deals with uh, pesticides pollution uh, in Indian agriculture. And today, Indian agriculture is facing this crisis where, you know, we're we're reading about farmer suicides um, and we're reading about soil degradation. We're reading about water pollution. We're reading about crops, food crops being contaminated with toxic chemicals. Um, and one would think that this would make people angry. You know, one would think that the government would take this as a priority um, and act on it, but that doesn't seem to be happening. So there's almost this sense of being lulled into a slumber um, and you're just taking these, these cases and these incidents of poisoning and pollution as, you know, well, this is just a part of our everyday routine. So that's kind of what my book's trying to address, really. Like, what kind of a governmentality um, has led to this state of affairs and, and what might be the way forward? But first of all, trying to understand how we can even begin to justify, um, you know, living with ongoing pollution and ongoing toxicity and being OK with that and tolerating that. So, so yeah, so that was a, the first case study, of course, was about pesticides pollution in Indian agriculture. And the second case study um, is about the 1984 Bhopal gas tragedy. Um, again, interesting from this perspective, because, um, you know, nothing really has been done in terms of remediation. Um, the victims are still fighting for their rights. Um, the perpetrators, you know, uh, have pretty much got away scot-free. So again, it's just it's just a case of ongoing pollution. Um, so that's yeah, that's what my book tries to tries to understand. Thanks to Pali. And I think that gives a really, really uh, rich introduction to uh, the topic and the themes and the way that you're you were motivated to write this this book. And it's it's kind of startling and quite shocking and and I think mm. that's part of what you want to invite us into that kind of sense that there's something quite shocking here about mm. um you know our our sense of uh, being in toxic and being in toxic environments being mm. kind of natural and inevitable and something we just have to put up with I mean when, right. when I think yeah. about you know how we normally kind of deal with that is that when mm you know, um, scholars kind of reveal those things to us, we kind of go, oh, terrible, that's really bad. And, and who do we blame? And let's kind of have a wee think about who we blame here. And it's the big mm -hmm. bad company that's poisoned the river. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the lack of health and safety checks that, that led to the gas explosion. It's mm -hmm. something, you know, and, we, and then, then, of course, we've got easy fixes mm -hmm. around that. We can just kind of go, oh, well, OK, now we know who to blame. We can fix it and mm -hmm. sort it out. But you actually then take us into a different way of thinking about it through mm -hmm. this sense of normality, of yes. everydayness, of toxicity, because you mm -hmm. take us to a level, as you just hinted at there, of kind of governance, that something mm -hmm. about this experience tells us something important about how people are governed. Could you say a little bit more about that? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so I think, and this is probably not novel um, anymore in the 21st century. And, you know, it has been theorized before, but uh, one of the central points um, that I make in the book is uh, about the way that global capitalism, and particularly in its latest phase, right, let's call it a phase, whatever, um, neoliberal capitalism actually functions. Um, and what I argue for in this book is that for the neoliberal capitalist machinery to keep churning and to keep turning, it needs, um, you know, certain populations and certain places um, as available to be poisoned. Um, and that, you know, that's where the title of my book comes from, that certain populations and, and certain environments are deliberately made available for poisoning, for pollution, right? So this idea of um, not in my backyard, but it is in someone's backyard, right? And that's the point. You're All you're doing is displacing the pollution from richer parts of the world to the poorer parts of the world. And that's what I mean by these populations and these places being made available to be poisoned. So, so I... I'm trying to drive us towards thinking about um, to, about you know this idea of chronic exposure to toxicity, not as isolated incidents here and there, but as very deliberate and conscious strategies um, that are required by global capitalism if it must keep making profits um, and. Yeah, and I think that's that's the direction that the book's taking. I actually just want a little bit of an expansion around what you call, you know, kind of the global global capitalism in particular, but also the particular particularity of your case, which is kind of India. So that kind of, if you like, the kind of the national, the global, and how how you know through the work that you've done in the book, you understand that relationship, broadly speaking. Well, I mean, I suppose it would be a matter of um, looking at looking at it through the I I'm not very much in favor of these terms because they can be quite deceptive um in certain regards but for for instance the global north and the global south the divide between the global north and the global south um and the ways in which toxicity and pollution is offloaded um from the richer parts of the world to the poor parts of the world um and in this way um the costs or the consequences of profit generation, of prosperity, of modernity and of progress, they're hidden away. Um, and that's what keeps the machinery turning. Uh, when you can't make those obvious connections between your choices and your lifestyles in one part of the world and see its consequences in, an, in another part of the world, um, and I think this is happening a lot, uh, particularly with environmentalism. Um, so, for instance, with the rise of vegan diets um, in the global north and in, you know, in in richer countries, I suppose, um, it is having detrimental consequences in the poorer parts of the world. And I was actually reading this very interesting article, which actually drew that link. And it's said that uh, women for, 
from very poor communities in India are the ones who are actually, you know, being exploited for their labor um, in the cashew industry. Uh, because with the rise of vegan diets in the West, the demand for cashew nuts has got, gone up. Um, and so these women in poorer parts of the world are actually, you know, peeling um, the cashew. And, uh, and as a consequence of that, of course, time is money. So they must do it as quickly as they can. And for that reason, they choose not to wear gloves because it slows them down but their hands are peeled and, you know, it's it's that kind of back-breaking work for a pittance. Um, and of course, you know, as a consumer, many of us are trying to do the right thing today, right? We are conscious um, of climate change. We are conscious of, of um, you know, environmental and ecological collapse. And we are trying to make conscious decisions uh, but we can't see the ripple effects of those decisions um, and I think that's kind of the master stroke of global capitalism isn't it these networks are so obscure that it's hard to it's hard to make those connections so that's also what the book tries to do um, and this is not to say that, you know, as a consumer, you're wrong and you should not, you know, I'm, I'm speaking out against vegan diets or anything, but it's just to visibilize um, these networks that global capitalism has rendered invisible. I wonder um, if you could say a little bit more about one aspect of the book that I find fascinating, given my own interest in uh, the work of kind of Foucault, which I also suspect that our our listeners might find interesting. I mean, you know, I would imagine, you know, many people listening to this will be making certain connections around populations, governance, you know, you know, this kind of Foucault connection won't be too surprising, but maybe just in your words, kind of how you understood or understand in the book this, uh, the importance of thinking about Foucault's work, particularly, I suspect, but you, you, you know, you tell me, I suspect around notions of biopolitics and how he kind of framed these questions of governance himself. I think a big influence um, for me has been Jasbir Poir's work and the way in which Poir has reinterpreted Foucault um, for the 21st century. Um, and this whole idea of toxicity as a form of life and being available to be poisoned is coming from, is, is heavily inspired, I have to say, by Poor's work as well. Um, and Poor actually says in her book that, um, you know, it's no longer simply a matter of letting die. Um, neoliberal capitalism is actually disabling populations um, and using them as labor, as exploited labor. So simply letting die or, or directly killing is no longer serving the purpose of the global capitalist machinery. Um, disabling populations and letting or leading them towards a slow death. And again, you know, we can think of Lauren Berlant here as well, um, Berlant's idea of slow dying or slow death. 
Um, these are some of the concepts of some of the ways in which Foucault's work has been interpreted in, you know, in our recent times that have really inspired my ideas in this book. Um, and I found them very, um, very interesting for understanding what's happening today um, with the surplus or excess populations, right? So this surplus or this excess is being reserved, um, you know, for poisoning, for maiming, um, for exploitation, for oppression. And that's not an exception, though. That's part of the normal functioning of the biopolitical machinery today. So that's the way in which, you know, I've tried to understand our 21st century uh, global political situation. Yeah, for me, there are, there are a lot of resonances here with um, what I like to think of as the kind of one of the apparatuses of control within the mm -hmm. within the kind of neoliberal, should we call it just for the sake of it, kind of global north, which is that you just yeah. have to you have to be stressed to just the right amount. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, what you're saying is that one one other element of this is that you have to be maimed or poisoned to just the right amount and that these just the Absolutely. right amounts really help kind of the, the functioning of this this new kind of governance. I think it's fascinating yeah. stuff to Pali. I mean, I wonder if I can just broaden it out a little bit um, mm -hmm. to kind of think about, you know, what we will also be familiar with um, as 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 kind of um, you know readers of your of your work, but also as listeners to this um, discussion, that this has got to fit into kind of broader ecological concerns for us. That we, you know, we can't help but feel now that we we kind of need to take your work into account as we think about our ecological choices. I mean, you've given examples there as well about you know diet and so on. So, is there something that you think we miss that's kind of you know, there's a crucial miss if we don't take into account <clears throat> just exactly how toxicity is becoming a way of life for for people. Are there are there lessons, if you like? I mean, maybe that's not even the right word, but are there lessons to be learned from your work about how we should engage with the climate emergency, you know, above and beyond, you know, let's call it the straightforward or the obvious, you know, reduce emissions, reduce waste, et cetera, et cetera. Is there something here around the governance about this? these populations who are maimed to just the right amount um, that we need to take on board for the bigger picture of, of dealing with the climate emergency? Yeah, that's a great question, Ian. Um, I, of course, I hope that for the readers um, and for the listeners of this podcast, like it would, uh, everyone's able to take away something um, in terms of how they can reread or reinterpret our global scenario today. But the difficulty, I think, and this is something I've just mentioned previously as well, but the difficulty really lies in not being able to, to, to draw those links because they're obscure, because they're deliberately hidden from view. So, you know, how do you then do due diligence as a consumer? How do you really do the right thing? It, it almost becomes an impossible problem um, because how do you then know that the choices that you're making today are actually environmentally friendly? Um, they're actually sustainable choices. They don't have some kind of hidden consequences for people in some other part of the world. Um, and maybe you're now living a cleaner lifestyle, but at the at the expense of someone in India or Africa or, or South America. Um, 
And it's a tough one. It's a tough one, but I think it's a matter of awakening as well. I think we need to be quite conscious of the, the larger narratives that were being told um, about how to solve the problem, very often about what the problem is, first of all, but also how to solve the problem. Um, because like I said, uh, the example I gave about vegan diets, um, most often today uh, there are ripple effects um, of choices that we're making in privileged parts of the world. Um, and these the consequences of these choices are being felt by the most vulnerable uh, social groups in other parts of the world, hidden from view. Um, so I, th I think it's just a matter of trying to think more critically, doing deeper research um, about the paths that we're choosing. Um, and not simply buying into the narratives, you know, the environmentally conscious narratives, many of which are actually coming directly from big industry, right? Um, and you're being another example that I love giving is about recycling. And I think today almost all of us know um, about the recycling scam is what I'm going to call it. Um, we know plastics are not being recycled, but we as consumers are doing our duty. We're, you know, we're sorting out our rubbish, we're putting it in the right bin, um, and we're doing everything we're being told to do. But we don't actually know what's happening further downstream in the supply chain. Uh, it's all just being mixed up, dumped in landfill. It's being sent, you know, shipped across to other parts of the world, poorer parts of the world with lax regulation. Um, and obviously, the most vulnerable and marginalized communities in those parts of the world are actually sorting through this rubbish. Um, without protective equipment, um, plastics are just being burned in, in, you know, in open landfills or they're being dumped in the oceans. So it's, you know, I think the awakening, it's happening definitely, it is going to take time and that's not entirely the fault of the consumer, it's because it's been so deliberately obscured uh, by industry and by governments um, that people might not have direct access to that kind of knowledge. Um, but I'm glad to see that, you know, there is definitely a change. It's definitely that awareness, much more so today than, say, you know, 20 years ago, perhaps. So I think we might be might be heading there as a ray of hope. <laughs> Dipali, thank you ever so much for this conversation. Um, I think it's <clears throat> clear that this book, um, Available to be Poisoned, is genuinely eye-opening. <clears throat> it mm. really does give you a sense of looking at the world differently. For me, though, equally important uh, with respect to your work is that it's kind of mind-opening. And it's mind-opening oh, in the so. sense that it, yeah, thank you. That it, it really gets us thinking gets differently thinking. about what it means to be in toxic environments, how these toxic environments then do function in relationship to the non or less toxic lives that um, we hope to be leading and so on and so forth. And those questions of governance, um, national, domestic, international, um, 
for me are really at the heart of the book and I think you do it so well to kind of explore what's going on there. So this brings us to the end of yet another Bookaholics. If you, our listeners, would like to support the volunteer work that we're doing at our non-profit institution, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking, you may consider becoming a member of our community. You can find more information on how to join PICT on our website. In the meantime, my name is Ian McKenzie. I was joined today by Dipali Mathur, author of Available to be Poisoned, Toxicity as a Form of Life, published in 2022 by Lexington Books. And I hope we have the chance to challenge you with another picked podcast soon. Goodbye. Thanks, Ian. Goodbye.